sure that we can all say is God has been faithful to us. Amen? I've not always been faithful to him, but he has certainly been faithful to me. And it's so good to see you today. What a great crew here this morning and thankful uh, to uh, have you gathered around this morning. I also want to uh, welcome those on live stream and our Mayport campus for the first time is on live stream today. So welcome. Aaron was over there this morning and had their first Bible study. And they're going to be tuning in with us over the next few months as we get ready to launch the new church. So it's good to have them here as well. And uh, let's take our Bibles this morning turn to Mark's Gospel chapter number 10, if you would. Mark's Gospel chapter number 10. As you know, by now, if you've been here for any length of time, we've been studying the life of Christ in a chronological order. We've been looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and synchronizing them together to form a, uh, a chronological study of the life of Christ. So we're now in our third year of study. As I mentioned last time, uh, the, these next few sermons are literally the last few days, conversations, teachings, miracles that Jesus did just before he enters into Jerusalem for the final time. We call that the triumphal entry. I think it's the first Sunday of October that we study the triumphal entry of Christ. And then really, from everything from that moment forward takes place in the last week of Jesus' life. And so, uh, this is an exciting time, an exciting journey and today, we're in another one of those difficult uh, texts. It's a difficult question. Uh, really, when Jesus gives this answer to this question, it is quite a perplexing answer that may throw you off if you're not careful in your study of Scripture. But uh, let's look at it carefully together and ask God to help us in our understanding. As we look at Mark chapter 10, beginning, if you will, verse number 17. The Bible says, now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he, that's the rich young ruler, answered and said to him, Jesus, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, watch this now, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Amen. This is God's word. I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, a question for the ages, a question for the ages, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? You know, I love this time of year for one very obvious reason. Football is back. Now, for those of you that don't like football, 
we don't really care because the rest of us really do. And I am uh, a passionate football fan for two teams, of course, in college. Sometimes it's really embarrassing to say this, but I am a true West Virginia Mountain Ear fan, okay? I grew up there, and I'm always hopeful every year. I know I'm going to get disappointed every year, but this Thursday night at 7 o'clock on ESPN, you can watch the Mountaineers play Pitt. I almost flew up for the game. It just did not work out in my schedule, but I will be there on Thursday night. So that would be a bad time to go to the hospital, everybody, okay? Uh, Thursday night at 7 o'clock, I don't plan on answering my phone or any such things during that session. But as you all for sure know by now, I am a serious Kansas City Chiefs fan. Don't hate. They just happen to be that team that's made the playoffs seven years in a row and four AFC championships in a row. The next closest team to making the playoffs that many times in a row is three times. So they are extraordinary right now. And last year, although we fell short and did not make the Super Bowl, uh, we did make it to the divisional round of the AFC playoffs in what is arguably one of the greatest football games that has ever been played. The final score of the game was 42-36 to in overtime in favor of the Chiefs. And of course, the game, particularly the fourth quarter, was filled with all sorts of drama. The Chiefs were up With three minutes to go, Josh Allen scrambles on a desperate fourth down play and down by five points, secured a first down near the Chiefs' 10-yard line. And with only two minutes to go, he scored the touchdown and the two-point conversion, which gave the lead to the Bills by three with just around two minutes to go. With only one minute to go, uh, Patrick Mahomes answers and shoots a 60-yard touchdown pass to Tyreek Hill. The Chiefs go up by four. And just when you thought it was over, Josh Allen throws a 19-yard touchdown pass to take the lead by three with only 17 seconds left. This is when I stood up from my couch, threw things, and said things I shouldn't. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do all that. But I was very upset. Very upset. And, of course, you're thinking, okay, 13 seconds, this game is over. But uh, it would be over if you didn't have a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes and receivers like Travis Kelsey. So with 13 seconds left, 13 seconds left, Mahomes connects with Hill, Tyreek Hill, that is, near midfield. And then the very next play, with about five seconds left, he connects again with Travis Kelsey on a slot and puts them within 48 yards for a field goal, which Harrison Bucker nailed, tied the game with time expiring. We won the coin toss, and on the ensuing drive, scored a touchdown, and game was over. I had about 14 heart attacks, roughly somewhere along that line during that game. It really was. It was was extraordinary. Even if you're not a Chiefs fan, if you're not a Bills fan, if you're just a football fan, this was a game for the ages. It, It rivaled all games of any caliber, of of any history, of any NFL playoffs. And so I look forward to what is coming this year. It's going to be great. While we have seen games of the ages, we're seeing in our text really a question for the ages, a question that every single person in the world must ask themselves at some point. What does it take to get eternal life? How do you know that you have eternal life? And here we're going to see in one of the most intriguing exchanges in all the Bible, 
Jesus gets asked this question, and then Jesus answers the question in a way that I think all of us that know the Bible pretty well scratch our heads at like, wait, that's really not the answer, is it? And then, of course, we see the sad reality of this man ultimately rejecting what Jesus presents to him. So let's take a look at the question of the ages, first of all, by looking at a question brought to Jesus. If you'll notice back in verse 17, it says, Now, as he was running, or excuse me, as he, that's Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, before I get into the question itself, I want to ask two additional questions. The first thing I want to ask is, who is it that's asking this question? In Mark's gospel, it only says, one came. But if you go over to Matthew's gospel, chapter number 19, it tells us that he was a young man. In verse 22 of this text, it tells us he was a rich man. And then in Luke chapter number 18, verse 18, it adds the fact that he was a ruler. That's why we call this guy the rich, young ruler. So just think about that for just a minute. Here's a guy that was asking about eternal life when he was young. Can I just say that Ecclesiastes makes it very clear that you are to remember now your creator in the days of your youth? Hey, listen, you might be a teenager, you might be a young person, a child, you might be a college student, maybe you come to church mainly because your parents tell you this is what we do. I know that was the case with me. I know when I was a kid, I only went to church because my parents made me go to church, and I endured church like maybe some of you do. But I got to tell you, it would be wise for you, no matter who you are, but especially if you're young, to be asking this question, how do I know that I have eternal life? By the way, he was also rich, which tells me that his money, come on, his money was not enough to satisfy his own curiosity. Just because he had money, just because he had a lot of things, did not stop the nagging question in his soul. I'm amazed at how many people give attention to their health, how many people give attention to their wealth, how many people give attention to their family, how many people give attention to exercise or whatever the case may be, and never stop to give question to your soul and what is going on in your soul. May I, may I encourage you today, there are other things to think about beyond your retirement account and the amount of money that you make and the neighborhood that you live in and the kind of cars that you drive. None of those things are going to give you eternal life. And if that's all that you have, you may just find yourself empty uh, like a zero with the ring rubbed out. And you may find yourself that the truth is, I can have everything this world promises me or everything that this world has told me that I need to be happy, to be fulfilled, and to have some permanency in my life, only to find that there's still a nagging question. And the question is this, what are you going to do after this life? Oh, sure, you may have it made here and now. You may be young. You may have life ahead of you. You may have a lot of things. You may have a lot of money. But the real question is, what will happen when you die? The Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So he was young. He was rich. He was also a ruler, meaning that he had a, a prestigious position. He was well-known. He was obviously over something. I don't know what it was. I don't know who it was. I don't know if it was a particular nation, a city, maybe a business. But he certainly was administratively leading something. Folks, i got to tell you, there is no position that you will have in this life that will negate your need for Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter uh, if you're the president of the United States or the president of the world or the president of whatever. That is not enough status to clear you with God. 
It's not enough status that you do not need God. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're influential. It doesn't matter if you're a, a ruler. It doesn't matter if you're young. Everybody in between, listen, all have something in common. We need Jesus Christ. So who is he? He's a rich young ruler. How did he come to Jesus? I think this is interesting. Back, if you look at verse number 17, it says, he, he came, watch this, running, kneeling, and asking. May I say this to you today? That's a good picture of how you should come to Jesus Christ yourself. By the way, the answer is Jesus Christ, clearly. He had everything you'd want to have, but still knew that he needed to get to that man and ask that man this question because he knew that man's the one that had the answer. And i got to tell you, there's only one way to God, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. There's only one way you're getting to God. And it's through Jesus Christ. This guy knew this. So as he came to Christ, he came, watch this, running, kneeling, and asking. I'm not suggesting to you that the physical posture of running or the physical posture of kneeling uh, or, the, or, the, or a certain verbiage of asking is the key. But I want to say this. When you come to Jesus, you ought to come urgently, you ought to come humbly, and you ought to come desperately. And that's what the guy did. He ran to Jesus urgently. The Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. When should you get saved? I've got a good and easy answer. Today, if you are not. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. He came kneeling, meaning he came humbly. Although he was a ruler, watch this. Although he was a ruler, he took a knee before Jesus. And may I suggest to you, there is a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, you're going to be forced to kneel. One day, standing before God at the great white throne, you will kneel. You will confess that Jesus is Lord, but unfortunately, that will be too late. Today, you should acknowledge he is who he is, acknowledge that you need him, and come humbly to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then, he came asking. He came desperate, obviously, what the man needed, he didn't have. See, if I was going to go the, to lunch today to Chipotle, which is where I would go every Sunday if I could, I would go, if I have the money, I'm not going to ask anybody to help buy my lunch, right? But because I, I'm self-sufficient. Why would the rich man ask something of Jesus if he was self-sufficient? He knew he wasn't self-sufficient. When you come to Jesus and say, I need eternal life, you are admitting by coming to him that you do not have it. And you cannot obtain it on your own. So who was the man? He was a rich, young ruler. How did the man come to Jesus? He came quickly or urgently. He came desperately. He came humbly. But now I want to look at the question. I want to say this before I read it again. It is a good question. Notice what it says here in verse number 18. Or excuse me, verse, uh, end of verse 17. He asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I, might, or I may inherit eternal life. Guys, this is the question. What does a person have to do to inherit eternal life? Don't tell me that every person in this room has not given some consideration to the question about eternal life. It's on the heart of everybody I've ever witnessed at a funeral. Sometimes it may creep up a little more subtly and quietly in the recesses of your own heart, laying in bed, unable to sleep. 
The question is a question that we all have to deal with. And obviously there's a certain level of mystery, isn't there? There's a, there's a, a question, there's a mystery there. What happens to me when I die? And i got to tell you, the Bible paints a very clear picture of what happens to people after they die. Folks, there is something that happens to a person after they die. And by the way, by the fact that there is eternal life, there's also a temporal life. Meaning, there's a life that will not always be here forever. You will not live in this earth forever. In fact, the Bible says the days of the years of our lives are three score and ten or seventy. And if by reason of strength they are four score or eighty, yet is their labor filled with sorrow and struggle. The, uh, uh, we spend our lives as a tale that is told. So what are we supposed to do? We are to, we are to, uh, we are to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. But folks, listen, your days are numbered. Look, you could be the healthiest person in this world. You could take your vitamins. You could even eat tree bark if you want to, okay? But here's the bottom line. You're not going to live in this earth as you are forever. You're going to die one day. It's going to be over. One day, somebody's going to be conducting your funeral. One day, your kids are going to cry over your loss. One day, you're going to breathe a breath, and you are going to exhale, and you're never going to inhale again. It is going to happen. And you being prepared for that day is the question of the hour. But then there's this question. What happens after that? Well, there is mystery because we don't have any credible witness testimony, if you will, from people coming back and describing this. However, we have the more credible witness in Scripture that tells us that it's even stronger than an eyewitness account. First Peter chapter, Second Peter chapter number one. Scripture is a more credible witness than even eyewitnesses themselves. And Scripture would tell us that when a person dies, there is an eternity. Paul said, absent in the body is present with the Lord. How many are glad about that today? How many are glad to know that if cancer empties out the life from your body, it doesn't matter because one day, as soon as it's all over, you're going to be present with the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. It's a promise. It's a promise. In fact, 1 Thessalonians goes so far to say this, we are not ignorant concerning those that have died before us, for the Lord himself shall descend with the shout, with the archangel, the voice of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Watch this. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm telling you, there's an ever with the Lord day coming. And ever with the Lord day. But I want to equally and quickly say to you that those that do not go to heaven and spend eternity with God because of Jesus will sadly and unfortunately die and go to hell without Jesus. There was a certain rich man named Lazarus, uh, uh, a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. It came to pass. That the beggar died and was carried by angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and in hell he lift up his eyes. Listen to me very carefully. It is a good question. You will live somewhere forever. It's a good question. But at the same time, watch this. It's a bad question. Does anybody know what's bad about this question? Yeah, it's, it's, it's oxymoronic. I mean, look at the question again. Watch it again. Watch this very carefully. What good thing shall I do that I might inherit? Doing and inheritance don't go together. 
inheritance is a gift, and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But I want you to see the real problem of this question. It was a good question. i got to think about eternal life, but it's a bad question because the man's asking, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And I want to give you the short answer to the question. You ready? Nothing. Now you say, why did Jesus do that? Well, I'll get to that in just a minute if you'll give me a second. Why did Jesus answer like that? We'll talk about that in a second. But here's the text, uh, the, the, the text teaching us that something we all need to know, and that is this. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. The very fact of the matter is, you are not saved by what you do, you are saved by what Jesus has done. So the problem is, the guy was looking to himself for salvation, and he's asking a good question, but at the same time, he's asking a really bad question. While his focus should have been on Jesus, his focus turned to himself. Kind of like me this week, to be honest with you. I went out fishing on Monday. I had a busy weekend, so I decided to take Monday off. I took sort of a sort of a sort of Monday off. It wasn't really a day off, but it was kind of a day off. And I, I squeezed a little fishing trip in there. The Reds are getting fired up again for all you fishermen out there. It's great. Okay, great. And we got out there, and it was perfect. The tide was going out, and it was, it was about two hours before low tide. So that last group of fish were moving out of the creek, and I pulled up in there and anchored up in my very favorite spot, right on the edge of a deep hole and right on the edge of a trough. And, man, I threw in second cast, snagged about a 17-inch redfish, and it was on. It was exciting. And I took Adam with me. It was his first time out and on the boat, and I, was, I hooked the fish. And we're taking pictures, so excited about the, the moment that, uh, lo and behold, I took a picture of the fish and then slid the phone in my pocket and then just went right back out to it again. And about two seconds later, I heard, bloop. Yeah, that was my iPhone 13. Also just happened to be attached to my wallet. So I watched my phone and my wallet and my driver's license and my permits and my credit cards and my debit card, oh, did I mention, and my iPhone 13, boom, down, and I, I just froze for a second like, oh, no. Oh, no. But then I quickly gathered my things together and cast again. What was I going to do about it? It's setting at the bottom of the intercoastal waterway there up a creek somewhere in uh, Ponte Vedra Beach. And that's okay, it's there. So I had to fish and we caught a lot more fish. But isn't it crazy? Here I am, I'm there for one thing. And the one thing is not to take a photo. But there I was getting distracted, doing something I knew better than to do. And even if I did take a picture, which is okay, I should have threw the phone back up in the dash where it always is when I'm fishing. But nope, not me. I got focused on the wrong thing, and all of a sudden, I had a great loss on my hands. That is exactly what this guy did wrong. What he did wrong is he came to Jesus. That was right. He asked the question about eternal life. That was right. But the part that was wrong was he asked the wrong question by saying not, how can you give me eternal life, but rather, what can I do to get 
eternal life. Which leads me to the second point, okay? This is the point you're all probably really curious about. And that is the question was brought to Jesus, but number two, an answer is given by Jesus. An answer is given by Jesus. And I mean, guys, to be honest with you, if you were to come to me and say, what good things should I do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to stop and go, well, nothing, man. That's the wrong question. I'm going to say, actually, you can't do anything. Let me show you the Romans road, or let me show you Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Let me show you all the verses I just quoted to you. But did you notice that's not what Jesus did? What did Jesus do? He said, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Okay. He starts naming the Ten Commandments. Don't bear false witness. Don't, uh, excuse me, honor your father and mother. Do not defraud. And now he comes back to Christ and says, well, yeah, but I've done all these things. What a surprising answer. Is that not concern anybody else in the room when the weight of Scripture teaches that it's not by works? It's not by keeping the law. It's a surprising answer. I love this. This is great. You guys are looking at me like, please tell me what's going on here because I'm really confused. Well, it was, a, it was a surprising answer, but it was a very specific answer. Now listen, this is the answer to the question. The man asked Jesus, what can I do to inherit eternal life? So if you're asking that question today, there's an answer. What does a person have to do to get to heaven on their own efforts? Here's the answer. You have to perfectly and completely obey God's word without a mistake on your record. So the guy says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus peppers out some, some uh, answers from the Ten Commandments, and the guy pushes back. Well, wait a second, I've done all that. So then Jesus pushes back again and says, okay, okay, go sell everything you have. Come and follow me. Those are my terms. My, if, you wanna, if you want eternal life, you're going to have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, and just O, O, O. But here's the problem. The obvious problem that we see in the text is that the man is not willing to actually say, I've done everything right. There was a highlight list, if you will. And here's the problem with legalism. Legalism is everybody's got a list, but everybody's got a different list. You may be sitting here today going, yeah, I believe, you know, you know, I grew up, maybe let's say Roman Catholic, and there were like seven things that we were supposed to do that would ensure that we would have eternal life. And then if that doesn't work out, we'd have some, you know, people in our family pray for us and help us get out of this mess or whatever the case might be. And then you go over here to, oh, let's say uh, somebody believes in Mormonism, and they're going to say, no, actually, it's, you know, you got to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, but the list is different. And then you go to something like Buddhism, and the list is different. And then you go to Church of Christ, and all of a sudden baptism gets thrown in there, but it's a different list. Is anybody following what I'm saying today? Legalism says here's a list that you must do. Christianity says here's the actual list. 700 commandments in the Old Testament that nobody can perfectly keep. Nobody. And folks, even if we just did the Ten Commandments, let's just say today that all we had was the Ten Commandments. Everybody in this room has broken at least one of the Ten Commandments. 
And if not by Matthew 5, the intensification of them, probably all the Ten Commandments. And here's what James chapter 2 says. If you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you are guilty of all. In other words, the minute you sin, you become a sinner. You can't change that. The only way to not be considered a sinner is to have your sins, watch this, forgiven. They've got to be absolved. Even if you, from this day forward, guys, if from this day forward, you look at this passage, okay, 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 I'm going to do this. That's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep every commandment in the Bible, and I'm never going to mess up, which you'll never do. But let's just say somehow you could. From this point forward, guess what? You've already broken God's law. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none that does good. No, not when there's not a person in this room. I don't care if you chartered this church. I don't care if you've been saved a Christian longer than anybody in this church. I don't care if your grandpa or your grandma was a preacher. There is nobody in this room that can say, I've never sinned. So therefore, you are a sinner. And the only way that this works is two ways. One, you can perfectly keep the law which is what Jesus is pointing out to this guy. You want to know what you need to do? Do everything perfect. Or option two, recognize that you're not perfect. And fall on the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. So why did Jesus answer this way? It's very simple. Guys, don't miss this or you're going to miss the message. Jesus gave this answer because it's an answer to the question the guy asked. If the guy would have said, how does a person get eternal life? Jesus would have given a different answer. But because the guy said, what do I need to do to get eternal life? Jesus gave him a direct answer. There's no need to be confused here. Jesus was nailing down the guy's heart. He was nailing down his intention. He was nailing down his motives. He was nailing down his self-sufficiency. He was nailing down his religion. He was nailing down his reliance upon self. He was nailing down his own thoughts of his own goodness. And he was taking his eyes off of that and demonstrating to him that you might be a pretty good guy, but you're not a perfect guy. This is why when Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter number 3, who was a ruler of the Jews, he was a Pharisee, he had the Torah probably memorized and had a squeaky clean track record when it came to religion. That's exactly why Jesus looked at him and said, you must be born again. Because mark it down, nobody is too good that they do not need to be saved. But can I hasten to say this too, thank God, nobody is too bad that they can't be saved. Because you may be sitting here today going, I ain't even going to try this. I'm not even going there. I'm not going to come to Jesus and say, what good thing can I do? Because I know, I know me, I know my past, I know what I've done. I, come on, I know what I've said, I know where I've been, I know what my life's been like. And I don't even need to ask this question because I know I don't need it and I don't deserve it basically. And what Jesus is telling all of us is this, that every single person can be saved if you come to Christ the way that Christ tells you to come to him. So there's a question asked. What good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question and it's a bad question. The answer is given. A strange answer, but yet a very specific answer to the question. And then number three, we see finally a rejection of Jesus. A rejection of Jesus. When Jesus put it right down on the bottom shelf, watch what happens to this guy. Verse 22. 
But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Now that was a response directly to what Jesus said to him. So Jesus says, keep these commandments. The guy comes back and says, oh, I've done all that. Then Jesus goes back, pushes in a little further and says, one thing you lack. Boy, let that sink in. Would you let one thing keep you from God? One thing. And this one thing that Jesus is obviously pointing out to him is that you are a coveter. You are living your life for possessions. You have built this entire life of yours off of your own self-absorption. Now Jesus confronts him with that. Would you really be willing to walk away from that lifestyle? Folks, believe me, repentance is absolutely a part of following Jesus. Do not think for a second that we come to Jesus without consideration of the fact that I have broken his law and in order for me to come to him, I am turning toward him. And I'm following him, which what he's pointing out here is if you come and follow me, you're going to leave this behind. He wouldn't be the first guy that doesn't get saved because of something. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a certain belief. Maybe... But wait a second, my entire family was another religion. If I believe this, what does that mean? Yeah. You see, when you turn to Jesus, you're turning from some things toward him. This guy knew this, and Jesus squares him up with it. And watch this. The man goes away sorrowful, meaning he was emotionally moved by what Jesus said, but he did not trust Christ as Savior. Friend, I am telling you, I have watched people in services in this church and in the hundreds of places that I've preached weeped tears on carpets and aisles and in chairs at church services under the conviction that the Holy Spirit was speaking to them. You do not need an emotional move. Emotion will not get you to heaven. And I see this all the time at at church services and revivals and camps, people get stirred up and moved. Folks, listen, you can weep your way right to a Christless eternity. It's not about feeling sorry about stuff. It's not about just being emotional. It's about squaring up the question, what do I need to do to do it, get inherit eternal life? Nothing. Just turn to Christ. Follow Him. Repent. Trust Him. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And He will change your life. He had an emotional response, but finally, he shows that he was more attached to his possessions than he was to his faith. And that was it. But I want you to know, friend, this is not the only time in the Bible that somebody came square up to Jesus and walked away from him. It wasn't a King Agrippa that was moved. I'm talking about moved. Paul told him, here's what you need to do to become a Christian. And what did Agrippa say? Almost you have persuaded me. Hey, almost is not going to cut it. How about this? How about Judas? Are you kidding me? He was a disciple of Jesus. He graduated from Jesus' seminary. He kissed the door to heaven and went to hell. Almost. 
like I go to church, come on, like I'm a pretty good person, like my parents make me go to church, like yeah, I grew up in this church, yeah, like I grew up in the church downtown. Going to church is not the answer, people. Being emotionally moved is not the answer today. The answer is I'm going to listen to what Christ says. I'm going to let his Holy Spirit speak to me. And then I am going to commit my life to him by believing upon him and following him as a disciple the rest of my life. Will you follow Jesus? Let's pray today. What a question. What a question. Wow. What do I need to do to get to heaven? What do I need to do to get to heaven? You ever asked that question? You ever thought about that question? Pretty good person going to church, doing the best you can. Have you thought about that question? You say, I'm a member of River City Baptist Church. What in the world? I don't care. Have you asked that question? I'm a kid. I'm a teenager. Have you asked that question? Do you have the answer to that question? How many of you would say, preacher, praise God. I know for certain that I have eternal life, not because of me, but because of Jesus. I, I can give a credible witness to that. If that's you, would you lift up your hand with me? Man, I can give that credible witness to that. I know for sure. Thank you. You can lower your hands. God bless you. Is there anyone here today who would say, Preacher, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I'm glad I was here to think about the question. I don't know for sure if I have eternal life, but I want to know. Today, I got some answers. Preacher, would you pray with me? I, I'm asking that question, and I want to know the answer. Preacher, would you pray for me? If that's you, would you lift your hand? Anybody like that? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know the answer to that question. I want to know. I need to know. I'm religious. I'm good, but I do not know that I have eternal life. I'm struggling with the question, do I have eternal life? Just lift your hand up and then you can lower it right back down. Anybody like that? Preacher, pray for me. Pray for me. Let's all stand for worship this morning if you would. We're always available for prayer, for counseling, for help. We want to sing together. It's always good to hear the word and then respond in worship. So I want to encourage you to sing along. Lift your voice and your heart up and then we'll have some closing announcements, but let's worship together.